Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we are back for more with our guest, Susan Rose, lighting designer, programmer, lighting director, and musician and country music singer. Thanks for checking out part two of our interview with her. So you mentioned the cruise ships and your work with Norwegian. Uh, let's talk about that. I, I want to hear about that process and how that works. Gosh, I've done so many ships over the year. I've done stuff with Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, Celebrity, Disney, and lots of new installs, lots of new builds, brand new shows being installed. And I have been a designer on those and programmer. I mean, the rig typically has already been designed by the corporate designers. So I'm designing the actual shows in there, not necessarily the rig. Now, some rigs I've gone and redone and rehung them. A lot of these ships try to make the theaters consistent now, especially now with the newer ships. Theater is pretty consistent from ship to ship so that they're very similar. You know, similar gear they can buy in bulk, similar consoles they can buy in bulk. So depending on what cruise line it is, I'm seeing more consistency nowadays from ship to ship. So if I walk in a ship I haven't been on before, usually the room is very familiar to me because, and the rig's very similar and very familiar to me. Now, the Norwegian ship, the Hawaii, the Pride of America, when I first got involved in that one, the theater had been sitting empty for a while. So they basically was, here's what we have figure out where you want to hang it. So I was able to do a plot for that, you know, for the most part, and, you know, decide how I wanted the stuff hung. But it was a list of here's the gear that we have. Here's what we have. <laughs> you know, and the same with Dolly with my new stuff with them. Usually it's, you know, here's what we have. You make a plot out of it, do something with it. But this is, you know, we're not buying anything for you. But yeah, but the ships, you know, especially the theatrical shows on the ships, it's been fun designing the shows and programming the shows. And of course, I time code all those and the ship techs at that point take over when I leave. And then I go for cast changeovers a lot just to update things or if they change the blocking of the dancers and update positions and stuff. So, but I've been involved with ships for, for many, many years and the new installs are the toughest. They can be very stressful because especially on new builds, when you're on a ship being built, you know, nothing is ever on schedule ever, ever. Matter of fact, I got a paid vacation out of it because I was sent to Marseille, France for um, they Norwegian had just purchased Oceana uh, Cruise Lines and these really high-end, small cruise ships, but it's like, you know, really expensive to go on them. And, um, but they were basically getting those, these ships and redoing them and putting new shows in. And we got there and it was a big construction zone. I mean, you couldn't go in the theater. I mean, it was just, not, there wasn't anything to light. There wasn't even lights off. You know, so it was one of those things, well, we could send you all back home or put you in a hotel and give you per diem. I'm like, heck, I'm going to go on vacation. Keep me here. <laughs> so I had a week off in Marseille, France, and I went and played tourist. <laughs> but then we got on the ship, and I, and I had previs those shows. And that's another um, instance where previs came in handy because I had previs that a week prior to going to France. And if I hadn't have previs that, I would have been screwed because we lost a week. And when it came down to it, when we finally got on that ship, the show was still open in the same day. And not the same day I got on there, but the same day they had scheduled to open it. So I yeah. lost, even though I had a nice week vacation in Marseille, I lost a week of programming. So I was thankful I had previsited that before I got there because I would have been screwed when I got on that ship. Because when I got on that ship, it was like, and go. You know, it was like, wah! 
you know, I still had to focus the rig and do all my, you know, the conventional stuff. And I had to obviously get with my show file and update my presets. And, you know, it was just a couple of likes didn't work with their hums. We had to move them. And, you know, so we still had to go through that process. But it was like a, all right, and go. You know, you still got to do it. We just lost, you know, six days. So um, that one was, was pretty challenging just because of, of that. But a lot of the new builds, they're, they're tough. You're never on schedule. So I, always, I, I prefer to work at night anyway. I'll, I'll video rehearsals and I'll go back in overnight when nobody's in there and work. And then I'll get a nap for a couple hours and come back for live rehearsals. And you don't sleep on a ship. People think you're sitting there drinking Mai Tais by the pool and, you know, playing bingo or something. And nope. <laughs> You pretty much sleep when you can, and you're working a lot. You know, um, hit their hard. They're very challenging. Um, if it's a, it's a, if it's a functioning ship with passengers, then you really are working overnight because the theater in the daytime is used for bingo or a movie or excursions, and you're just like, okay, when can we get a window of time to rehearse with the cast on stage? Okay, we got that window, so I'll show up for that. Okay, I can go to sleep, and then okay, I can come back in tonight after after the shows at night are done. When they're done, I'll come in and work overnight. So it's just. Um, every ship is different, you know, every, every, every install is different. For these projects, you know, it's, it sounds almost insane to have a like LD programmer in a single person with the amount of workload there is. Yeah. Well, we do it now. If there's video involved or media servers, you know, that's somebody else, you know, like the ship in Marseille, there was a separate video guy for that. Um, so I'm not doing both at least, you know, but yeah, I, I usually rely heavily. I mean, I, I tell everybody, everybody's role is just equally as important, whether you're a stagehand or you're a spotlight operator or you're whatever. And I rely heavily on my lighting techs on the ships. And typically they know, unless it's somebody that just signed on to the ship, which I've had that too, where they're just in, as green as I am, like, you ever been in this room before? No, nope, me neither. Okay, we'll figure it out, you know. But usually I've had some amazing techs and a lot of those guys, they, they want to learn and they, they have a passion for, it. they have a theatrical background. And, and when, especially when I, when I, when I get those, I'm like, you guys, you guys are going to be my, my right arm on this project. I'm like, you just as involved in this as I am. And I, and I give them a lot of creative control over as far as doing something, because I can't be running around backstage fixing stuff. You know, if I have a problem with something or, you know, I'll have them take notes from me. I'll have them, hey, well, I'm having a problem with these lights. I can't do everything. So I, if I have a good lighting crew and they feel like they're a part of it, they're so willing to work with you. You treat people like you want to be treated, you know, and uh, I make them a part of it with me. They're just as important as I am to be there. I can't do this without them, whether I'm doing a theater here or I'm doing a cruise ship. You know, I, I always try to really bond with my my team that I have to work with and, and give them a specific task. And, and they feel like, wow, we're a part of this too. She's not just coming in here, bossing people around and saying, get out of here. It's like, no, I need you guys, you know, and would you mind taking notes from me? Okay. This cutie's, you know, and I'll have them take notes from me or something's wrong. Or can you go ask the director of this, go find out what they're wanting and can you deal with this? Or I got to go do this. Can you fix this time code for me? Or can you fix this, these, these notes for me? And it's amazing when I have some, some people that really are, have the passion like I do. And when I, when I realize that I'll, I'll, I'll trust them with things, with, with different assignments and say, Hey, can you do this and this for me? Or let's go to this and let's, let's, you know, and it makes it a lot, um, a lot more pleasant at that point. So I'm not having to juggle everything by myself, but yeah, it's, it's challenging sometimes, but if I have a good team, it makes it a lot easier. Wow. Uh, to, to some extent, it sounds like you're just saving Norwegian money. Well, that too. You know, where it's like, 
no, like one person can't do all these things. And you know, there's a reason that there are all these job titles. And, you know, not to say that the guys aren't important. I mean, just that you're not supposed to have to dash away from the desk to talk to the director because those are two different jobs. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I always joke thinking, when do I get to get assistants, man? When, when do I get an assistant LD? Does, you know, because I, I love it seeing the, the designer and the assistant designer. And then they have a programmer, assistant programmer, and this and that. And I'm like, where's mine? Wait a minute. <laughs> One other question about the cruise ships I want to ask you is, what kinds of shows are you doing on those? And we know what is the breadth of the kinds of productions that you're being asked to create lighting for? It's pretty much the the house shows. That they, not, not the Broadway shows they bring in, but like the, the house production shows. So the singers and dancers, um, they usually have a theme to them, whether it's a Broadway show or a rock and roll show or a country show. Um, they usually have a theme. But it's a, it's a production, a musical, basically, usually about an hour long. Um, and like I said, it's full of dancers, pretty costumes, you know, pretty scenic pieces. A lot of automation on ships now. The the theaters are beautiful in these ships now. I mean, they're, you know, automation and lighting and video walls. And I mean, it, it's, it's fun to like the shows, but they're the most of the shows I do are the production reviews. There There is one a little different show I did um, a couple of years ago. Well, I guess about five years ago now on the... Royal Caribbean, Quantum, and the Anthem, which are two of their bigger ships that came out. I don't know if they're still doing it or not, but when I programmed it, it was a virtual concert. So basically, it had a 270-degree glass view of the ocean. But at night, these screens came down to block it. And we had these seven robotic arms that had these seven-foot-tall LED, I think seven-foot-tall and three or four-feet wide LED screens on them. And they basically would would rotate and do all these different configurations of these LED walls. And of course, there's a video guy that had to map all this and do all the video. I had nothing to do with that part. But then they had these big screens that we projected onto. And there were these projectors that projected like a concert, like a, a concert of a band on there. And then the whole room was lighting. So basically, I was lighting this virtual concert but that was challenging too because you know I had to you have to have the haze in the air to see the beams, but yet you had to not have it too thick or too heavy or too bright to wash out the video. So that was actually a, a big challenge with that particular uh, show too. But their whole idea was they could do virtual concerts in there. They'd bring the band guys to solo on these these robotic arms. They had this guy there that programmed these arms. They basically were like these robots they use for cars. Like building cars, they're very precise. But every now and then, they still slam into each other. But but they're very precise. So they would they would rotate these things and move around. Somebody would do a solo. I mean, it, it was it was kind of cool actually. Yeah. But um, I don't know if they're still doing that or not. But that's what I did. And then while I was on there, they asked me to go light a show in the main theater, which was like a concert type show that they were doing a review show. But it was more concert kind of. Um, I don't even remember it to be honest with you. Um, but I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was like lighting a concert basically, but the other shows like on the Norwegian, they're, they're your typical review shows. Yeah. And then what about like the dance floor space or like dancing spaces? Do they have a live programmer or are they just, uh, in the nightclubs, they have some lighting program for it, but usually it's not anything really specific unless it's a, a ship that has a specific dance club with a DJ and, and an actual lighting jockey in there. A lot of the rooms I've seen, they just kind of have it just going, nothing specific at okay. all. Now, some rooms are, like one of the, the clubs on the Norwegian ships, they do 
like a little, they have the dancers go down there and do like a little ABBA tribute thing and um, like a 12 minute long, you know, ABBA thing, whatever. And I'd go program stuff like that, but there wasn't anything specific. They have a band on stage, but usually even with the band on stage, unless it was like a little show they put together, it was just bar, you know, just whatever. Got it. The very first guest I had on the show was Guy Smith, who... Oh, I know him. Oh, okay. I'm not I surprised. Him you know, years ago. He, here at Pigeon Forge, actually. Oh. He does these cruises with Atlantis, where they'll be, you know, they'll turn the entire top deck of the ship into a dance club every night. Oh, that's... Add all this additional gear, lighting and lasers, and tons of haze machines, because you need to kind of haze it up a little bit, even though it's going to get blown off. Yeah. You know, I know that that's not the standard for cruising, <laughs> right, right. But it sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the nightclubs are fun on there, you know. And they um, and sometimes they will program specific things, or maybe the the, the lounge techs will program their own things in there. And you know, but as far as when I go on to to light the ships, normally I'm just doing the specific shows. You know? Got it. But, so tell me about your music. I know you're a country singer or country music artist. What kind of music do you make now, and how much time do you spend making music? I'm actually, ironically enough, getting ready to go back to the studio again, but. I still do music. Like I said, the lighting career has allowed me to still do music. And now that I have abundant free time, I have no excuse not to do music again. <laughs> but um, I, I've done a couple CDs. Um, I write majority of my stuff, actually all of my stuff. Um, I'm more, though, traditional country. I'm not the mainstream, you know, uh, bro country and pop country stuff. I'm more Patsy Cline, Tammy Wynette, the old Reba stuff, Reba McIntyre. Okay, yeah. Um, but I still write, I still record, I still do music videos. I got three videos out. I actually worked on a, a project with a friend of mine last year. It was very, you know, no budget, but we had fun doing it. But it got a lot of airplay. She and her friend, and this is a producer I work with, they had written a song and they brought it to me to kind of restructure it because it was kind of just, it, it just wasn't where they wanted it to. So I thought, oh, sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And we ended up rewriting, you know, I ended up rewriting the song somewhat and became one of the writers on it. Then we did a music video for it and recorded it. And, um, it actually did really well because it was so funny. The video was actually really funny. The song's called "I'm God," and um, she got a lot of airplay out of it, and especially overseas. And um, it, it was awesome. fun. I mean, but yeah, she got me on Pandora and Spotify and iTunes. So if you type in Susan Rose, I even have a Susan Rose channel. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so I'm still doing music. So I'm actually um, looking to go back. I was waiting a few months to go in the studio, obviously, until you know we figure out what's going on. If you can get around people or not, but. I'm going to go in the studio soon and start recording some new stuff again. And, um, yeah, I'll still always do it. It's always been my blood, but, um, but yeah, most of my stuff, I've, I've written it. I've produced it in Nashville with, with other various producers. You saw all the Nashville players on it. And so it's not just a, you know, home studio project. It's, it's some serious stuff I've done and invested in, but more just for the passion of doing it. You know, I never, I never fit into that Nashville mold and nor do I want, especially nowadays with internet streaming and, you don't even need a record label anymore. You got YouTube, you got all the internet streaming, you've got Pandora and Spotify. So it's, you know, you, you find your market. If people want to hear it, great. What connections can you draw between making music and making lighting? Oh my God, 100%. To me, I always tell people, um, I feel like I'm performing just from the other side. You know, I, I love, especially when I'm doing more concert style lighting, I feel like I'm playing an instrument or even the, even the Dollywood tree or even the Disney thing I did syncing the lights to music. I feel like I'm playing an instrument with the lighting. And, um, I really feel like being a musician has helped me personally with lighting because I, I feel it. I feel the timing. I feel, I even feel the colors. And I always say, you know, I make people see the music 
you know, I'm not trying to distract from what's going on stage unless it is a specific lighting thing that's all about lighting, but you want to enhance it and make people feel it. And I just feel like being, since I've been in music my whole life, I feel like I naturally, that's why I told you when I create sometimes, I, I intentionally don't try to, to visualize what I want. I, I kind of just feel it as I'm doing it. It's almost like a, an artist sometimes when you're painting, you really don't have a, a specific thing you want to draw and all of a sudden you've got this beautiful painting and you go, wow, where'd that come from? And I feel like I'm doing that with lighting. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm emoting it, you know, visually when I'm feeling creatively and musically. And it, it's interesting too, how when, even when I'm doing a show, even if I have it and if I'm just roughing something in, I find it so interesting how a lot of us creative people naturally feel certain colors. Like I'll, I'll, I'll like maybe rough in a production show and then I get with the costume designer and look at the costumes and I go back and look and go, that is so crazy. I had magenta and amber in the song and he's got them in pink and gold costumes. I mean, it's just like mm-hmm. so crazy how sometimes I go, wow, it's amazing how a lot of us just naturally feel certain colors for certain songs or certain types of music, you know? So it's, it's just interesting. Um, you know, I don't know, but I do feel that, that, you know, being a musician though has helped me, especially with timing, you know, and getting things on specific beats and, and feeling the time about how slow light, slow or fast the light needs to move to hit at a certain time, you know? So I do feel like that, that has helped, helped me for sure. But like I said, I feel like I'm performing just on the other side now. Some of the best designers I've seen working on musicals and music entertainment themselves deeply understand music, you know, whether they were, you know, piano prodigies or drummers or like yourself, musician, uh, sign songwriter, they know how to break a song down and they just know more about structure. People with no musical training, what can they do to learn more about these things? It's interesting you said that because I had been talking about this a while back about doing a, a, a seminar on just cue structure. Because like you said, being a musician, if you look at my cue list, I mean, anybody can run my show if they sort of know music because I, I do structure intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, guitar solo, you know, and, you know, and button or whatever. And, um, but if, I, if I'm, if someone else is running it that's not a musician um, and they just don't feel it, they don't feel the difference between a verse and a chorus, you know, they don't feel that change naturally. I'll, I'll give them a visual element, like what what word in the song do we need to hit the song, or what what are you seeing visually right here that I can put in the notes column? It's gonna make you take that cue. The dancer stands on the the, the band cart, you know, whatever. The dancer entering stage left, and I usually now put those in the comment column anyway. I'll put verse, I'll put girl move center, or dancer enter stage left, just so it gives a visual as well as a musical structure. But um, I think if you know, if you're not a musician, just understanding the structure of a song, you know, the difference between a verse and a chorus and a bridge. And, you know, I think it just helps to, to listen and go, oh, wait a minute, the chorus, is, that repeated itself twice. Oh, that's the chorus, you know. So it's, it's kind of hard to teach that, you know. Um, I don't know how to, to really explain it if, if you don't naturally feel it. Like I said, if I'm, if I'm working with somebody that just doesn't have the musical timing, it's no big deal. I'll just, I'll just ask them, okay, let's, let's put a visual here or, or a specific word somebody's saying that you know you have to take this cue on. But it's kind of hard to teach. One of the things that's jammed me up in the past has been things where, like, there's a bridge between the verse and the chorus. 
you know, so we know we're no longer in the verse, but not we're not in the chorus yet. And then where choruses have, I don't know what even to call them, but there's almost like an outro on the chorus before you go back into the verse. Yeah. And so like sort of not feeling quite, you know, is it, so do I take it at the end of the chorus proper or do I take it at the end of the chorus outro and into the verse? I usually take things on the downbeat of the, of the first part of like a verse or a chorus or there's a, I'll, I'll call those like you call me, I'll call them like a turnaround, like a turnaround or a tag at the end. Um, but I'll, I'll typically take it, it depends, a lot of times on the downbeat of that verse, but it depends on the music. If, if I feel a change happening, I'll take it so the, the lights kind of move with the change into the next transition. So it just depends on the song. But I think structure is so important because that's the one thing I see when I go to some of these colleges and talk to these students and they show me their projects and a lot of the projects, it's like, it's just effects engine go. Blink, 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 flash, 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 stroke. How many things can we make happen in this five seconds? I'm just like, what, why did you put that change there? Well, I don't know. It looked cool. I mean, in the middle of a verse, all of a sudden, things start swirling around and spinning around. I'm like, okay, let, let's, just, let's just stop. You know, that's, that's great. You know how to use the effects engine. That's awesome. But there's a reason. You should have a reason you ran that valley. What, what was the reason you decided to take that valley right there? I don't know, it looked cool, you know, but it didn't go with anything, you know, and it's like, I think workshops on just music theory and just structuring a song so that you, you build into it, you want to blow your whole lot in the first verse, let's build up to it, let's build with the song, you know, and let's build on the changes, not just the song starts, let's just show off how I can program my effects, it's like, um... No, let's not do that. I, I see that so much in this in this younger generation that they're amazing programmers, but teaching creativity and feel and art, you know, art is in the eye of the beholder, you know, but but teaching that is a whole different thing. You can program the crap out of a console, but do you know how to feel it? Do you know how to to play it? To really emote that song and, and create that song. It's not about just making things blink and flash all the time, you know, Let, let's have a reason for it. And I think that's where um, a lot of us more seasoned LDs just have that, that advantage because we're, we're used to creating something out of nothing before the effects engine. And, you know, the effects engine enhances stuff, of course, and makes things great, but it's not about, it's not a light show. It's like, let, let's, let's enhance our artists on stage. And yeah, let's, let's make a light show around them, but let's, let's have the things happening on certain changes, not just because you push the button and stuff, stuff started trolling around. That is worrisome that if, you know, educational programs aren't starting from the basics of concept and design and intentionality uh, and are going straight to how to program a console, you can't start with how to program a console. Programming a console is a means to an end. And there have been different ways to do that ever since we started creating lighting, you know, over 100 years ago in indoor spaces. There have been different means to an end. And this is just the one we use now. I asked Laura Frank about a similar thing when we, when I had her on the show and, you know, she said, it's my opinion that a lighting console like a, you know, a grandma two or whatever is not the best way to learn how to interact with lighting. You know, if you start with like a two scene preset and mm -hmm. see how it works, see how it changes lighting, see what it does and learn to feel how physical lighting changes happen using that, that that is a better education to begin with than working with a visualizer and working with a full featured console uh, because y you're missing out on education there. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think it's just as important to understand the lights that you're working with too and what you have to work with because yeah, you can have this fancy console. That's just your tool to program it. But if you don't know what these lights are capable of doing or what you've been given to work with, it, it just, 
knowing what features these lights have because it's not just about lights trolling around and blinking. It's like, I've got these scenic pieces over here. I want to like maybe put it out of focus gobo at a light intensity just to give it some depth and, you know, maybe do not to draw attention to it, but to make it look like it belongs there and, you know, to do some up lighting to, oh, wow, that's added a whole other dimension and another layer of lighting and knowing just how to, to create that, that environment. It's not all about just lights trolling around, you know, and, um, I, I think you're right. Being on a simpler console and not having as much, you know, bling bling to work with allows you to really explore your creativity more. Because you know, when you, you're given a limited rig to work with, how do I make this look good? I don't have a hundred lights I can turn on and have trolling around and blink. And you know, it's like well, I've got just a few and some park hands. How do I make this look good? And I think teaching some true creativity and, and giving kids these workshops to do that. So they do feel the changes. They do feel the reason for having this light here. I don't have a lot of lights, so I got to really think about what I'm going to do with these lights, you know. And um, but I, I do wish that was taught more because I'm seeing that more and more right now. You've got these amazing programmers, but the art is not there. What are you turning out? Are you turning out programmers? Are you turning out artists who can do all the things? I mean, early on, because there was such a large gulf between the person behind the desk, you know, when, you know, like when you started and when these other folks started, you know, when, when programming was first becoming a, a profession, there was such a gulf between the designers who wanted to do things and the programmers that the programmers had to understand the, the art that the, pro, that the designer was trying to make to begin with. Right. Because the design, all the designer could do was describe it. And the programmer had to be able to hear them and then comprehend what that, you know, how, how to turn that into something. Yep. And that's for knowing what the lights are capable of doing, because that was what I talked about earlier. I like the challenge of working with another designer and trying to interpret what they're seeing in their head. And sometimes even what they're seeing in their head isn't what we end up with. It's like knowing how to, to tread that with them and go, okay, I think I know what they're asking for, but I know what these lights can do i know what i've got to work with and so give me a minute to try to make something for you and i create it and they go that's what i'm looking for can you change that color there yeah i think that's where we're going with it you know and i think that's where even as a programmer having a little bit of at least design natural feel for it helps me with other designers to interpret what they're wanting even though they may be asking for one thing and we end up with something else it's just interpreting the feel i can, I can at least tell the direction where they're going with it you know like I think I know it. Actually, I think I know what you're looking for. Give me a minute. You know, if they want some kind of cool, subtle water effect somewhere and this going on and I create this, this they want a, an ocean look on stage. And it's like, OK, what do I have to work with here? Hey, hang on a minute. Let me work on something. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think just having a creative feel also helps me as a programmer with yes. a designer, even though they're the ones designing the show. It's up to me to be able to create the feel that they're wanting it may not be specific give me that light of that intensity give me that and this it's like here's what i'm looking for susan here's kind of generally what i'm looking for for this and that's up to me to go okay give me my paintbrush let me start drawing right now is this what you're looking for? you know so it, it's it, it's an art it really is you bring up a really really good point there which is that the programmer has to know what the lights can do you can't expect anyone else in the room to know more about them than you do and if you don't know what they're capable of then you're not doing your job Exactly. You know, I always, when I, when I get on a new rig, I always immediately just kind of start playing with the light to see what features they have. If they have an animation wheel, if they have a, you know, the prism and the rotating gobo wheel and the static gobo wheel. What gobos are even in here? And even when I name my gobos, you're going to laugh. I don't always name them what they're named in real life. 
I name them kind of like a psychologist. What comes to mind when I first see this gobo? You know, and that helps me know really quickly because I'm on so many foreign rigs all the time that are not mine. It's up to me to learn this rig. And I have a numbering system that I use for every single rig just so I know what's a wash light, what's a spot fixture, what's a, what's a Sharpie type fixture. You know, I mean, I have a numbering system. I have a way of setting up my groups. I, I go through each light, each type of moving fixture to see what parameters are in there. So I know what I have to work, what the light's capable of. It's just really quickly identifying what you have to work with. And I think that's what's made me kind of um, a faster programmer in the past, because when I'm going into a rig that's not mine, that I've never even seen before, how do I get around this huge rig without pulling a plot out and having to go, where is this light at? And, you know, I, I guess I have a numbering system I use and I have a, a, just a way of setting up my groups and building my presets and, you know, going through the lights to see what they are capable of doing. And that way, when it's time to start programming, I'm not stumbling around going, hang on a minute, let me figure out what I have here, you know. But I think it's very important to know what the lights are capable of doing and what you can do with them. And just experiment, just trial and error, just bring them up and start playing and then layering things on top of each other and saying, wow, that looks kind of cool. I want to use that, you know. So you have your own numbering system, you know, something that can help you find the lights you're looking for. Uh, what can you, else can you tell me about the process you have and the stuff that you bring from show to show? How do the systems that you've created to help yourself work? Well, I mean, I, I think I mentioned earlier, well, I mean, I mentioned this, but I set every show up like a hog, all my views, you know, that's what I'm used to, whether I'm on an MA, whether I'm on an M1, whether I'm on an ATC Geo, I have a way of setting up my views that I'm used to seeing. Um, when I build my groups and my presets, all my colors, I always set up. I mean, I, I'm very consistent in how I build all of my presets and all of my views because that way it's similar to me. As far as numbering my systems, I'm, I'm rock and roll numbering. I number things from left to right as I'm looking at it or stage right to stage left, from downstage to upstage. Um, certain fixture types have certain numbers. And this kind of goes back to the old days with the MAC 500s and VLs and stuff. Like I know that a 501 fixture is a, a spot fixture in the range of like a Mac 500. <laughs> I know that a 601 through whatever is a, is a moving wash fixture, like a Mac 600. It could be an LED fixture, but I know it's a moving wash. A 701 is like my Sharpies or platinum beams or whatever insert high beam fixture. So I can at least get around. So if I'm on this huge rig, like Sam, on one of Mark Carver's big giant rigs for stellar awards, i got a million moving lights up there of every fixture type. It's like, ah! But the way I number them, you know, it's from downstage to upstage as I'm looking at them on my floor, left to right. That way, if there's a light, like, on the second truss that's hitting somebody in the face, and Mark goes, hey, I think a gobo is coming from up there on the second truss. I'm not sitting there trying to figure out what light it is. I'm like, oh, that's 207. The 212 is up there. So that's 211. And I can quickly get to it. So it's just having a numbering system that's very consistent, even on my ship gigs, on my theater gigs. Everything is just very consistent. So no matter what rig I'm on, I can at least, and I'll, I'll even type in my palette, my group palette. I know, I know now you have your your stage views you can do, but I'm I'm still used to my groups the old-fashioned way. I'll type in my group palettes. You know, the first electric is, you know, 201 to 208. So I'll, I'll put 201 to 208 in that particular row. That way, I know what fixture numbers quickly. I can look at it and go, what fixture is that? Oh, okay, it's between one and eight. Okay, so, oh, that's 204. You know, so it's just it's just having your own system of of setting things up so you can navigate quickly around a rig without having to sit there and go, hang on, man, let me get a plot out and look at it. And I, I have started using the stage views a little bit more, like on the MA, 
but I'm still not, I, it, even though it's cool to look over there and be able to see the lights, I'm still used to seeing it this way. So I'll still do it. Even if I have a stage layout, I still have my groups. <laughs> but there's no reason to abandon the stuff that's gotten you through all this yeah, just because I mean, there's a different display. Yeah, I mean, the layouts are great. They're convenient. They're awesome. I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. But yet, my security blanket's still over here in my little group's window, you know? <laughs> well, everybody has their own system. There's no right or wrong. That's why I always yeah. tell people, there's no right or wrong. Whatever makes it easier for you. I'm sure you have your system. I've got my system. doesn't mean one's better than the other. It's just what we're used to seeing. It's what... But, but you know, to be fair, now. if you're... If you're leaving that show in the care of a lighting crew and you're walking away from it. Right. And that, that's why the system that I've used, it's very user friendly for even my ship techs to come on and navigate their own. Because a lot of times I'll walk into these shows and it's just a mess. Like, oh, my God, who there's been so many people on it and that they weren't experienced and just throwing in groups and throwing in, not even naming them at the times. And I, I that's the first thing I do is I, I arrange all my groups that way. They can quickly identify their first, second, third, and fourth electric. Here's your wash lights, you know, first, second, third, and fourth. Here's the spot pictures, first, second, third, and fourth. And it makes it very easy. I, I try to make any show that I program easy for anyone to come into and be able to take over without confusion. And I think that's one um, thing I've, I've been consistent with over the years is that because so many other people run these shows not that I program, I want to make it easy for any any technician to walk in and be able to find their way around the lighting rig to edit things, to be able to get through a cue list. They can push go and read a cue list. They're going to get through that show, you know? So I name everything. I, I, I set the groups up in such an organizational way. And it's, it's interesting, too, when I work with other programmers that do it the same way or very similar. And it's cool to see that we all kind of have that, that thinking, that same core of thinking as far as organization and your, and your presets and your, and your groups and stuff. But people that are inexperienced, they don't really think like that. They just randomly throw things in there and don't even name it half the time. And you're just like, oh, God, what is this? You know, group 42. Okay, what's group 42, you know? <laughs> so you mentioned uh, doing award shows. I'd like to hear more about that. Oh, man, one of my favorites was the Stellar Awards, which is like the, the gospel music industry, you know, award show. And um, I, I do that with Mark Carver. I, I did that for like 12, 11 or 12 years with him. And Huge, huge rock and roll rigs, and um, did that. Did double awards a couple times, trumpet award. There's one I do every year in Pennsylvania called the Freddie Awards. It's actually kind of cool over there in um, near Allentown, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of talent in that town, and the school system there still does full production shows of like Broadway, like Wicked and Phantom, you know, the school versions. But the talent pool there, these kids, is amazing. And the Freddie Awards is kind of, it's in Easton, Pennsylvania, at the State Theater. And the Freddie Awards, it's like a high school Tony Awards. That's really cool. And it's televised. I've been on that. I met them coming through there with Ringo, actually, years ago. And this, and this was in 2007 was the first year I did it. I came through in 2006 with Ringo. And they're like, hey, you want to come back into this TV show with us? And I've been doing it ever since. I mean, we got canceled this year. But it is so much fun because... It's live. It's live television. We're using um, the house lighting rig, but they do rent lights. And me and the house lighting director there, Dave Cassar, we, we work, you know, on added, we, we rent lights, you know, to bring some more bling bling into it for the, you know, moving lights and stuff. But it's so much fun. And I, I really enjoy that one. That, that's my favorite one to do, actually. But the energy in the room with these kids and just the talent and the, the support that the community has for live entertainment still, especially in schools, because so many school systems are cutting arts and entertainment. And not there. If anything, they're grooming it. They're grooming it for Broadway. A lot of these kids go to Broadway and Disney and ships when they leave high school. You know, I mean, they're that good. 
you know? So, but doing the award shows are fun. Um, it's always very fast paced. Half the time you're programming as it's rehearsing. And that's one of the reasons getting a good system down, laying out your rig and a cue, cue a structure to work from that you can at least base start with, <laughs> you know, so you, you learn little shortcuts and, and stuff to do. And, um, of course on the MA, I'll have stuff on top. I can, I can add over, you know, I add my inhibitives and, you know, negative inhibitives. So I can bump and flash if I want in music and add effects on the executor buttons, you know, but, um, I love doing live television. It's fun. It's stressful. It's very stressful because you're driving all this lighting live on a television show and it, you know, you black out or oops, you know, it's going to be seen by everybody, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but TV is fun. I really like it. I've really learned a lot. Um, I, I kind of incorporate TV lighting into my live shows now. You got to be careful because you want to blind your audience. But yeah, you know, for TV lighting, you are. I'm, I'm not doing the key lighting. I'm, I'm usually doing all the, the eye candy. The key lighting is usually on a separate desk. That that is still separated. We have a media server person. We have a, a yeah. potential lighting person. Then we have a, the moving lights, and uh, I do all the, the moving lights, the eye candy stuff. But you know, just lighting those angles for the cameras, having the, the steep angles coming down and stuff out in the audience, over the audience, and these big giant looks. You know, so the cameras can weave through them and have these big, cool looks, even though the director half the time takes close-ups. But, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a whole different whole different world. And then plus, you're also having to be conscious of not contaminating um, the artist with too much color or gobos on their face. So, I mean, it is definitely, um, it makes you really think about what you're doing in your position presets. You don't want to flare a camera, too. You know, I'll usually have a a router out there so I can go through all my, once the cameras get set up, I can, I can go through, I'll have the cameras just set in their main position and just go through and make sure I'm not pegging any in the, in the, in the lens. I can put it above it. So they still get that cool thing, but they're not getting it right in them. So I mean, I really have to really think about my position presets too. So I'm not hitting people. I'm not hitting cameras. So I mean, it's a whole nother, a whole nother challenge, set of challenges that you have to think about when you're doing television, especially live. And sometimes you don't get a camera rehearsal. So if you don't get a camera rehearsal, then it's like, well, here we go. You know, and you got to hope you have a monitor. There's sometimes when you don't. And you're like, well, this looks okay. But usually, you know, I mean, at least I have a monitor. If I see a camera, I'll just, I'll just update it live. You know, oh, God, that light's hitting that camera. Okay, what number? If that's in that range, okay. Tip it up, update my position, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. So, but it's, it's TV is different, a whole different ballgame. So for those kinds of projects, how has camera technology affected what you're able to do? As far as I can see, the amount of colors and the amount of different intensities one can actually do and see the camera capture has gotten a lot larger. There are times, especially if you have old cameras, you know, especially LEDs, they all look blue. You know, stage me magenta, it looks blue. You have lavender, it looks blue. I mean, everything looks blue. You know, and um, the camera technology has changed so much, especially if you have a good video person that's good with, obviously, white balancing. And, you know, even when we do the Freddie Awards, that's one of the challenges we do is, is sitting there trying to trying to chip the camera so that, you know, you see the different colors on stage. Everything's not blue all the time, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that has, um, but it has evolved. The newer cameras, especially, it's amazing some of the shows I've done where I'm like, oh, my God. It actually looks like on TV what it looks like on stage. Yay! You know, but that, that has to do with really good video people, too. And because um, sometimes you do get old cameras that just, you know, process LED color. And of course, I write everything on inhibitives, too. Like everything, especially in blue, it was at full. It was like this big blob, this big Space Invaders blob on your screen. You're like, oh, God. So I bring it down until it looks good. It may not be very bright on stage, but it looks great on camera. So I mean, it's just. Um, 
once again, as a, as doing the lighting, as being on the on the board, that's my job to to look at these cameras. And if if that's what I have to work with, well, how am I going to balance it out the best to look the best I can for the camera and for the audience? It can be challenging, especially if you have crappy cameras and a video crew that just was on auto. You know. Yeah. But the technology has gotten better because I I mean it, it's amazing now how you know my magenta shows up magenta. Yeah, wow. yeah, not blue, not yeah. Blue. Wow, I can actually see it. I can see my magenta and amber look. It don't look like blue. <laughs> yeah, and you don't necessarily have to inhibit the, like the actual blue down to like 15% just so it doesn't right. bloom. Right, right, right. So, yeah, the technology has changed, but unfortunately, budgets haven't, and you still have people still using older gear. So, I think that's the key thing. You may, you know, especially some of these kids in school, they learn on these high high-end consoles and lighting and cameras and they get in the real world where we have zero budget and we have a, a 20 year old console and a 15 year old camera and you're like old lights and it's like well let's make the best out of what we have to work with here you know this is what we got and this is what we're going to make look good you know that's all you can do is that's when it you know it's, it's your responsibility i think as a lighting designer to you know to rather than kick and scream and, and complain about it and jump up and down and get angry is that going to change the situation? No. Is it going to get me more lights or a different trim height or a different stage? No. Okay. What do I have to work with here? And what can I do with this to make it at least the best? It may not be the ideal show that I wanted, but what can I do to make this the best that I can do with? And that's where, where you actually succeed because you're not, you're not limiting yourself. You're challenging yourself if anything to say, how can I make this look good? And believe me, I've done that a lot. I've, I've the queen of the sand from sun junk rigs, you know, and it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I work in a, I work in a, a B market field where we don't have a lot of budget, you know, my, my country and night show is my, my, my most proud show because we don't have a budget there. And, um, we had put eight Galatian and platinum beams in there. We have a big park and rig still with some ACLs and scrollers. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I thought, how can I make this look different? And we had some old broken cyber lights. I have mirrors mounted around the stage where I bounce the light on the mirrors and we focus the mirrors and I got these huge looks with eight lights. And matter of fact, in the Christmas show, it was kind of a joke, but now it's part of the show. We uh, did a Trans-Siberian Orchestra song, of course, for the band teacher. And of course, me, since I haven't done lighting all year, I was like, yes, I can program the crap (laughs) out of this song. And I did. And we have no time code, so you know what I did? I did learn timing, and it's very important that me or Marshall or whoever's running it, we have to listen for the click of the drummer to hit it on the downbeat. As long as we hit it on that right beat, the whole song, song runs itself now. We miss it, we're screwed. Um, but <laughs> it's my redneck time code, you know? But, man, it turned out awesome because I bring all the electrics in. The electrics all come down. The guy is all manual. There's no... There's no automated system there. It's all guys pulling the ropes in and out. And um, I bring all the electrics in, three, the second, third, and fourth electric all lower down. And I have a focus on the mirrors. And it, it is a smoke and mirror show. So now, right before they do it, they're like, now we're going to feature the Country and Night Band featuring the lights of Susan Rose. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So I have my own solo in the Christmas show this year. But yeah, but my point is, you know, it's making the best out of what you had to work with. It seems like the technical abilities that you talked about sort of just having naturally early on that, that got you on the desk in the first place. It seems like, like you've really been able to take advantage of whatever you've been able to find in whatever situation you're in. I think I learned that um, early on, like I said, in Louise Mandrell days when we didn't tour with stuff because we would, 
you know, show up to these places at the time. And I had to use what was there. And sometimes it was not ideal. You know, I, I'll never forget this one story. I, I don't even remember where we were, but we got there and it was a tiny stage and the trim heights like right here and not very many lights and this little, I want to say it was like an NSI or some little cheap board I've never even seen before. I'm like, and I'm like, whoa, what am I going to do with this? And okay, let's look up there where I can move gels around and refocus. And I, I literally was like, well, you know, I'll make the best of this. So I, the day went on and we focused the rig and I made some looks, made sure the dancers were going to be lit and got what I needed. And the house LD came up to me and he's just like, I just want to thank you. And I said, for what? He's like, we know we've got crap in here. You know, we've got a crappy situation in here. And he goes, you know, a lot of people come in here and they get mad and they get angry. And, you know, and I looked at him, I said, he goes, and you didn't. He goes, you just come in here and you just sort of made it work. And I said, without complaining, because everybody always complains. And I looked at the guy and I just went, well, let me ask you this. I said, if I had complained about this and gotten angry over it, would that have gotten me more lights? Would that have gotten me a different state? Would that have gotten me a situation here today? I said, you know, to me, I'm looking at it as well. Yeah, it's not ideal. It's not going to be my best show I've ever done. It's not going to be the prettiest show, but I'm making do what you have here. This is what you have to work with. So that's what I'm, I'm doing. And he just said, I just want to thank you for that. And this was early on. This was when I was really young. I just, I didn't even think twice about it. I just thought, oh, crap, how am I going to make this work today? Oh, let's get started, you know. But, but getting angry about it wasn't going to make the situation different. So why complain and be angry and, and mean to these people when it's like it's not their fault tell me about the disney theme park stuff you've done oh gosh that was the coolest thing i've ever done um to this day that'll always be one of my favorite projects um i got called in in 2006 this is when they first started doing all the animated light shows when the guy had the miller light commercial and they're synchronizing the christmas lights to music right now we're, this is you know obviously 2006 now everybody's doing it but back then this was wow. This was cool. So this was the Osborne Family Lights or yeah. pre that? So the Osborne Family Lights had been there for years over there on um, on their back lot that was there. And they decided to take it to the next level and sync it to music. They moved it to New York Street, which none of that's there anymore. It's all Star Wars now. But back then, New York Street, the Disney MGM, Disney Hollywood Studios, whatever it was called at the time. And they're going to move the show out to two city blocks. And they needed a programmer for this, obviously. And they had an in-house lighting designer, Mark O'Connor, that designed the actual, you know, buildings and the lights and structures. But um, they needed a programmer for this. And it was such a new thing at the time, once again. It really changed my whole way of programming. And I'll tell you why. So we had a whole hog two at the time. Now we had over 5 million Christmas lights they're all incandescent at the time. And I'll, I'll get into the LED change over here in a minute, what we learned about that. But anyway, it was all Christmas lights. There was no media server. It was all Christmas lights. So I had over a thousand desk channels. And literally, you if you saw my, I'll since you're a hog guy, I'll send you the, the, the screenshot of something. The way I had my groups laid out, I had to break every single building down to like building trim and windows. And I had my figurines and my trees and the tree within the tree within the tree. So I had these elaborate two to three screens full of groups. But programming was even more important because it it, it, it was a long time to program a, a two or three minute show. Like yeah. weeks. <laughs> our song rather. And 
I was on song number one. Of course, it was a TSO song. Song number one. I'm not even finished with it. And I get an error on the hog two that I've never seen before. Memory full. Brad got a call that night. Because <laughs> you got to remember, the hog two had very little memory in it. And it was a tracking console. Well, this particular show, these were hard on-off values applied over hundreds of channels in every queue, whether it's an effect or just something turning on and off. You had, it just ate the memory like instantaneously. And I went, what do I do? And Brad's like, oh boy. So we ended up getting an IPC. Remember the IPC that came out? Oh, I remember the IPC. Yeah, so at least I had an actual computer and more memory. But what I had to do was, like, how am I going to do this? So rather than using, if you saw my comment section with macros, it was like, you know, trigger this list, list, go list, go list, go list, release list, release list, release list. And what I would do is I I would create an effect for this particular tree or this canopy or this whole effect I'm doing. I would save it as its own cue list. And it's something special that I used over and over. I could trigger that list, so especially effects. So I would have effects built for each song, but say the chorus always ran this particular chase on this Christmas tree, this particular chase on this canopy and building. I would save each of those as a cue list. And so I wasn't eating up all that memory of having this effect. Because if the effect was so similar, why eat up all that that memory applied over all these thousands of channels or hundreds of channels? So if you looked at my macro, it was hilarious. I would just have this long row, every single cue, basically triggering this list, triggering this list, releasing this list. You know, it was just like, but it, it made me really think about my program because it was like, okay, how am I going to, I want this for this, but I don't, you know, how do I do this to maximize my memory capacity of this console? So it really was a whole different way of programming for me. And um, I did it in layers. I mean, I couldn't, there's no way you could approach that as one big entity. I would sit in the middle of the street and like tonight, I'm just going to work on, and I, I, some things would be blind. It was built, groups I had built, but I would sit where I could see the majority of stuff. I couldn't see everything. And I would program it a few bars at a time. And just tonight, I'm going to work just on the buildings, just on the buildings with the, the trim and the windows and buildings, just on that. That I'd run the t- I'd time code it, that I'd walk around and watch it and, s- and see where I missed something over here, something over here. And the next night I'd come in, okay, tonight I'm going to work on the canopy. So I turn around and look at the canopy. That's all I did that night was stuff for the canopy. You know, the next night and so, and so, et cetera, et cetera. So each night I'd work on a different section, not even paying attention to anything else. Just I was, I was focused on this is what I'm doing tonight. And, you know, and, that would time code it, you know, because there were so many cues in that. There's no way not even I could have run it, you know. So um, that's how I got good with totally, time. Yeah, totally get it. Yeah. And I was and I was playing it like an orchestra. Like this this set of windows was, you know, this was the rhythm section and this was the horns and these are all the, the vocals and these are so I actually played it like an orchestra. But I didn't look at it as a whole. I did it literally layer by layer. And then in the end. You step back and watch it and go, wow, how did I do this? But it's because I had to really just compartmentalize 
it all the whole way and you just could not approach it as a whole like if you did that you would have just ended up with a big hot mess you know so but since i did break it down into layers and sections once it all got glued together in the end it was like wow this is really cool i did it for five years that way we and we were on the hog for five years and then 2010 they decided to do everything in-house again because it's kind of that same corporate environment. You know, 2006, they had fired everybody like, like corporations do, laid off the entire department. It's cheaper to bring contractors in. Fast forward five years later, you know, oh, wait, why are we bringing contractors in? We're going to do this in-house. Yeah. And, and then they switched over to MA and they put a media server in and they, but they only lasted a couple more years because they bulldozed it and turned it into Star Wars. But it was a fun project while it lasted. It was probably one of my most um, challenging, but yet, rewarding projects because when I would go on opening night and see the response of people, you know, I, I, I literally would almost cry sometimes when at the end of a song when people would cheer, you see them dancing and looking in amazement at the end of a song. Yay. And I'm like, Oh, I did this. I did this. I did it. You know, <laughs> back then, you know, Lightorama and animated lighting were the ones that were just starting to get this Christmas lighting thing. And they didn't even have dimmable, um, capabilities or even DMX capabilities. So they created a DMX interface for us. And at the time, it was it was very old school. It wasn't anything. I mean, it was definitely custom built for our what we were doing. So when we started implementing LED lights. I had learned this on a show at Dollywood that you needed a ghost load on them because they're not going to dim. And we they put all these LEDs on the buildings and all of a sudden I couldn't dim them or they wouldn't totally black out or they'd snap on or they'd, they'd shudder and strobe. I'm like, and I remember we had these box, each, each building had its own box from anywhere from 16 to 32 channels we had. So all these little tail downs were coming down that all the lights would plug into, right? Well, I told the guys, I said, do you guys have any of the regular incandescent lights laying around? And they said, yeah. I said, I want you to go do me a favor. We're going to try something. I want you to go plug them in in line with these LED lights. So we did. They had this wad of regular string of lights. They plugged it in, and then they, you put the LEDs, and all of a sudden, I could dim them. I was like, uh-oh. So we literally, because we were so close, I mean, it was too late to change out everything in these boxes. We had wads of lights hanging in the each tail. Oh, oh man. <laughs> it wasn't ideal, but it worked. So the next year, they actually inserted a, a C7, you know, the bigger Christmas mm-hmm. light bulbs, into each each box to take that load off of. And then, of course, over the years, the technology developed and they didn't need any more and we could dim them without all the, you know, rigging, you know, redneck rigging things, you know. But it was a learning curve even with that back then, you know. And even when I use LEDs, I, I did a Nickelodeon thing that same, well, I guess in 2010, Nickelodeon had a hotel in Orlando. And they're like, hey, can you come over and program our Christmas show? We're doing an outdoor show by the pool. I said, sure. And once again, all lights were, sna- were snapping on and off. And I literally pulled my t- one of my texts over at like midnight. And I said, uh, I need you to run to Walmart. And they're like, why? I said, you need to buy as many Christmas lights that are not LED as you can. I, I need at least this many. Uh, uh, and they're looking at me really weird. I said, just trust me. Just trust me on this. So they did. So this guy goes out and buys a bunch of Christmas lights and brings them back. And I said, go plug them in over there with that LEDs. And you know, so, I mean, it was, it was definitely a, a learning curve for all that back then, you know, because the technology wasn't there. Now you can buy dimmable LEDs and, um, you know, things have obviously changed now. But it, it was it was comical at times. It was like, uh-oh, how do we get around this, you know? Can you tell me about In My Shoes? Oh, my God. You really did. You, you Google stalked me, didn't you? You know, I'm kind of a, a 
a Jack or a Jill of all traits, you know, I have that performing background in me. And I've, I've done a lot of television and um, commercials and stuff, but this, this friend of mine that I work with, Rhonda, uh, Rhonda Smalling, who I did Ungone with the song and the video, we've been talking about doing a TV show and we wanted to be positive and basically be inspirational, encouraging for people. And she came up with the idea of in my shoes, because you never know what go, you know, walk a mile in your shoes. You never know what someone's going through until you walk a mile in their shoes. Everybody has a story. And the guests that we brought on were people that real people that you know had overcome some kind of struggle in life or overcome something and and always had a beautiful story to go with it, an outcome to go with it. And um, you know, even this one guy we I'll never forget we brought on was a performer, a performer at Dollywood that had this um, spinal disease. He had a wheelchair, he had a, his spine was all messed up. He because I when I heard at first we had a gentleman in a wheelchair that was going to be a performer in a show, one of our production shows. I thought, how am I going to do that? That guy was amazing, man. He came out there and spun around in his wheelchair and danced in the wheelchair. And at the end of the show, he would stand up and people would applaud it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And his story was beautiful because he was born with this deformity. And it, they was told he would never walk. And the surgeon took a chance with him and said, if you're willing to take the chance, I will. And they did this. This, this surgery on his spine to make it so that he would be able to maybe or maybe not stand up and walk someday. And while he was in a body cast for months, he taught himself how to play the guitar Wow! and wanted to be a singer and a performer. And he did it, you know, and um, it was such a beautiful story. And I'm like, he, he didn't have a handicap. He, he overcame that and said, yeah, I want to be a performer. I'm going to be in a show. And by golly, he did it. And I thought, and, and so it was, it was cool stories like that. Or people overcame something or survived a cancer or survived some kind of traumatic thing in their life, but they had a, a beautiful story outcome to go with it. So like I said, you know, you never know what someone's going through until you walk a mile in their shoes and to be able to hear those kind of stories and, and touch people with it that maybe were sitting there watching that and thought, I can't, I can never do this because I've got this. And they, they see somebody else and went through the same thing and went, oh, there's hope, you know? So it, it, was, it was fun. And of course, Rhonda and I feed off of each other. There's no script. I mean, you know, there's no script. We kind of had an idea and an agenda of what we wanted to, you know, where our guest was and what we wanted to ask them and, but the, the conversations actually just happened, and her and I play off of each other really well. And there was a lot of funny moments, you know, because we were just silly and goofy. And we always made the guests feel very comfortable. After a while, they forgot they were on TV, on camera, because they'd be nervous at first sometimes. And even performers we'd bring on there, because a lot of performers had similar stories to mine, where they were bullied and made fun of and shy when they were young and performing got them out of that. So, I mean, it was just all walks of life we had on there. And it was actually a lot of fun to do. And at one time, we had a TV station. We did all some TV, local TV stations for a while, and then we also streamed it. And we had, I think at one point, about two or 300,000 followers, which wasn't bad, you know, for a little bitty, you know, local show. So, um, but it, it was fun. So we're, we're hoping to start it back up again when we can, you know. Ideally, yeah, to have it in a studio environment would be great. But right now, we were talking about trying to set up um, kind of a Zoom-type thing where we could do, because that's where – Things are going right now. A lot of people are doing Zoom-type um, television stuff now. So hopefully we'll get it going after the first of the year again. Okay. That sounds really, really cool. Yeah. So I just I like doing things, even when I'm doing you know my guest lectures in public speaking. I just like to encourage people and inspire people. And um, 
I just feel like that's another calling of mine. And maybe that's the direction I'm supposed to really focus on now. Maybe this is, everything happens for a reason, you know, it's like, maybe I'm supposed to, to take a break from lighting or even move out of it. I don't think I'll ever totally quit it, but maybe it's time to start focusing on some of these other things I've been talking about, you know, for a long time. One of the things I really want to do that I have a passion about is, you know, because of being bullied and because of going through some things I've gone, you know, having eating disorders back in my former days and the struggles I've even gone through, even being a female in this business, whatever, you know, it's made me who I am now. And for many years, I was always trying to live up these expectations of what people thought I should be, how I should look, what I should weigh, how I should act. And I, I started in my life becoming all these different people for everyone. And when I turned 40, I finally had enough. And I'm like, you know what? This is who I am. You know, who am I? I I'm all these people for whatever, whatever one else wants to see, I've become that. But who am I? And I actually wrote this song. It's probably one of the most personal and strongest songs I've ever written called This Is Who I Am. And um, I really want to use that that song as a tool to do kind of more of a motivational tour type thing where I just basically just tell my story and, and tell my own struggles and say, look, you know, tr quit trying, whether you're, you're, you're gay, you're straight, you're fat, you're skinny, whatever your walk of life is, be proud of who you are. To say this is who I am, if you don't like it, you're not my friend to begin with. And I think that's really a direction I want to take that, to try to encourage people to embrace their individuality and be proud of who they are. You know, quit worrying about what everybody else thinks. One of the lines of the song is, I try to be everything everyone wants to see. And everybody's, you know, these days it feels, I feel like people are having such an identity crisis, including myself, you know, where you're trying to figure out who you are yeah. and your sexuality. And you're so worried about what people are going to think. It's like, screw them. Screw them. Be, be proud of who you are. And that's exactly what I want to try to do is try to do, you know, more, more public speaking in which I do now, but to that subject and use that song kind of as, as my anthem towards it, you know, to, to, to really embrace who you are. Personally, I'm thrilled to hear that that's something that you feel so passionately about and that it's something that you want to help other people with. The one element of what you said there that I want to ask you more about is about the struggles you faced as a woman in the business and what, you know, I hate even the idea of talking about how did you get through it because it's like, well, people shouldn't have to get through it. It shouldn't be an issue. Mm -hmm. People shouldn't need tools to get through it because it shouldn't right. be happening. But it does, unfortunately, you know, and I've been asked this question many times and, um, you know, what's it been like, especially being a girl on the road. And, you know, at the time when I first started doing this, I really didn't even think twice about it because, you know, I had grown up singing in bands. I was always, my best friends were always men. I was always in shows and friends with all the, the men in the shows, the, the techs, the, the dancers, the band, you know, I traveled with bands. So to me, at the time, at the time, I didn't feel odd. I, I didn't realize that, I was a minority. I didn't realize that I was an oddball and I was the only girl in the room until somebody asked me, was it like being the only girl in the crew? It's like, oh, uh, I don't know. I'm just one of the guys most of the time. I mean, you know, but I have faced those situations where you do go in some of these houses and you have some of these, um, like, you know, theaters where you do have some of your, um, more sturgid old timers that think girls shouldn't be doing this, you know, and, when I, when I face something like that, I don't try to overprove myself. You know, I'm not going to go in there and, and try to go, I'm a girl, I can do this, you know, and 
but I'm not also going to go in there and, and back down to them. But at the same time, it's like, well, I'm just going to do my job. And then at, over the day, they're going to see that, oh, maybe she actually doesn't know what she's doing. And I've actually had that happen even recently on a tour last year. I, I went into this one house and this one guy was just being a real jerk to me. Didn't want to, didn't want to follow anything I was asking him to do. He wanted to do it on his terms and his order. And I'm like, you know what, dude, this is your house. This is the way you want to do it as long as it gets done. And I just kind of went and did my thing and said, here's what needs to get done. Whatever order you want to do it in, go for it. Because he just, he just wasn't listening to me. And, but I didn't get angry about it. I didn't, I mean, I was, I was, I, I was, I mean, I was in, internally, I was frustrated, but I thought, well, this is how he wants to do it as long as it gets done. Well, by the end of the night, he ended up being one of my spot ops. And I, I told you I love calling spot shows, and um, I've gotten lots of compliments. I, I guess a lot of people don't really call that well anymore. I didn't realize this until I multiple gigs come up to me and say, thank you, call a great show, thank you so much. So after the end of the show, he comes up to me, and I'm like, oh, God, here comes, here comes this guy again. He goes, first of all, he goes, I have to say the show looks really good. I went, okay, is this a joke? You're like, yeah, no shit. And he goes, you you call you call a really good show. He goes, he goes, you won't be you'd be surprised how many people don't really call cues anymore. I do it last minute. He goes, you call a really good show. And he goes, you did a really good job. And I'm like, thank you. It's almost like his whole attitude changed towards me. I almost feel like, but I, you know, but I'm not going to say thank you because I don't need to hear that from you. And like, w- regardless of what you thought, I did a good job. Yeah, but it was, but it was almost one of those the guy. Thought I was just this girl walking in, didn't know what I was doing, and and at the end of the show, it's almost like he put his tail between his legs a little bit, like you know, yeah, you actually did, wow. I mean, but it was, but it was, it was insulting, but at the same time, it was like, well, at least he figured out that I wasn't just some idiot. Then we always had these custom gels that Jeff has in Alicos. They're like weird colors that nobody uses. And then he actually gave me the he was, you want to take these gels with you? You can have these gels. We don't need them. All of a sudden, he was being nice to me, and I'm like. But it, it was frustrating. It made the day very frustrating because I felt like he was disrespecting me all day long because if I asked to get something done, it, it was almost like he wanted to do the opposite or do it. And I'm just like, okay, you want to pull a snake before you do this? Okay, pull a snake and then do this. I don't care as long as it gets done. I mean, it was it was literally that trivial. It was so stupid, you know? And, um, yeah. and, I, and I've dealt with people like that, but I've, I've learned that, you know, the one thing I have learned, you have to have a tough skin. Um, because there are days where I have had some jerks and I, I've, I've gone to my master electrician and said, can you go deal with this? Because they won't listen to me. And it is, I shouldn't have to deal with that, you know, but sometimes I have no other choice, but to just sometimes just go to somebody else and say, I'm having a problem with this. Can you please get this done? Because apparently they don't want to listen to me today, you know, and it sucks. Yeah. That part does suck. But for the most part, I've had some great experiences because I, I don't go in there you know, I, I have no makeup on. I don't go in there dressed to to flirt or be, you know, hey, here I am. Well, I can't touch this because I'll break my nail. I'm not that at all. But at the same time, on the on the flip side of it, I've seen some of these girls that try too hard to prove themselves. And to me, it's like I have no problem moving a road case or picking up something. But I also don't have a problem asking for help. You know, I don't expect somebody else to do it for me. Usually they'll they'll do it anyway, but I don't have a problem saying, hey, this is too heavy for me to do by myself. Can you come here and help me lift this? I have no problem asking for help. But I also don't expect other people to do it for me because, oh, I'm a girl. I can't lift this. You know, if I have one guy in front of the house with me and I'm wanting to get the console on the table, I'll go, hey, can you help me with this for a minute? Sure. 
Okay, here it is. I mean, I have no problem doing that, you know? So, but at the same time, I'm not trying to prove myself either by going, yes, I can do this by myself. I don't need a man here to do it, you know? So it's that kind of fine line of balancing of knowing what your, your strengths are and what your capabilities are and just treating people like you want to be treated. And for the most part, I'm, I'm you know, these, 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 these crews respect me, you know, and are very pleasant to work with because we're all a team making it happen. But every now and then I'll get the jerk. I do have to say this sounds kind of like the old story, though, of like, it's on the woman to do the emotional labor of like figuring out how I'm supposed to be or how I'm supposed to talk. So that way I'm writing that fine line. And it's like, that's even that's insane. Yeah, it is, you know, and and it sucks. It's just a part of how it is. But there are so many more females in this business now, which I think is great. You know, cause, you know early on, it was, you know, in the early days, it was a handful. It was me and you know, Laura and Vicki Claiborne and, um, you know, a handful of, of, of females that were out there doing it. But now there's a lot more coming forward and, you know, making, you know, whether it's lighting or sound or video and you're seeing more and more out there, which is awesome. But we're, we are still definitely the minority out there as far as, you know, um, the ratio of men to women on the road. Um, but, you know, when I tell people, look, I'm here to do my job. I'm not here to to have a dating service going on. Yeah, I'm here to do my job. And yeah, I'm on a tour bus with a bunch of guys, but I respect them. I respect their girlfriends. I respect their wives. You know, I respect myself. We're here. We're colleagues that happen to be traveling together. You know, this isn't a a, a, a dating site for me. You know, I have a good reputation in this business. I want the wrong one. You know, to me, I'm there to do my job. You know, and, and that's why I tell people when you walk into a room to do your gig, just you're there to do your gig. Don't don't be focused on, oh, my God, I'm the only girl on the crew today. That's that's not the way to look at it. I mean, like I said, I don't even notice it until somebody points it out to me. You're the only girl in this room. I'm like, oh, I am? Oh. Okay. Y'all want to go get a beer after the show? <laughs> Where can people find out more about you or see your work or anything like that? Well, I do have a website. Um, if you just go to SusanRoseMusic.com, Susan Rose, like a flower, SusanRoseMusic.com. Um, I have several tabs on there. I actually do have a lighting tab on there um, that you can actually access through Squinterest.com. <laughs> but it's, it's easy to remember SusanRoseMusic.com. You can go hear my music on there. You can see some lighting pictures on there from some of my shows and um, some of my music videos. And pretty much you can get a good summary of Susan Rose on that site. So. Yeah, one thing I'll say is I think Squintress is very memorable. Yep, Squintress. I, you know, it's funny. My phone number may have changed. My address may have changed. My email address, yes, it is still AOL.com because I've had Squintress since 1995. And the way I got it was my Opryland days. While I was at Opryland during the Christmas season one year, I worked on their showboat. It was a riverboat. So they had a day crew and a night crew. So in the day crew, we had a little show on there. People came up for lunch and went up the river and ran a show. And then we had the nighttime one. Well, I was the daytime lighting lighting check or whatever you want to call me on there. And uh, so we had, I think, an ATC expression or insight or something on there. And each day, I never saw the other guy. We just would leave each other notes. Like if something broke or, you know, things worked fine or this lamp, lamp blew today or whatever. And he just started writing on the console, good morning, Miss Splintress. I'm like, huh? You know, I'm like, oh, because a lot of people at this point, I realized her name's Squints, and I'm a chick Squint. And it just kind of stuck. So I became Squintress. <laughs> so it's S-Q-U-I-N-T-R-E-S-S dot com. So if you just go to Squintress.com, it'll take you to that same website. So. All right, and then you said you have stuff on YouTube as well? 
Yeah, I have Susan Rose music on YouTube, and you can see some of my music videos and some of my silly, just, I just do silly videos. I call it the misadventures of misadventure, and you can just see some, like, just silly, funny, goofy things I've done, and um, I, I love when I travel. I love sharing the world as I see it through my eyes, so I post a lot on Facebook, and I put my little videos on YouTube, so, but yeah, I have a little YouTube channel that I'm, I'm going to probably start stuff on again soon, so. Susan, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for, for, for letting me talk and share my story. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.